A very warm welcome to the first of our new series of seminars, the Koinonia Seminars. These are a collaboration between St Paul's Cathedral, Westminster Abbey and the Diocese of London. And in these seminars, we will be inviting some of our brightest and best theologians to present to you their cutting edge research in their particular area of theology. They will happen once every two months or so, and each year there will be four that will be online like this one, and two that will be in person, one in person at St Paul's Cathedral in January and one in person at Westminster Abbey. We're delighted that you have been able to join us today and hope that you will enjoy the first in this new seminar series. It is a great pleasure for me to be able to welcome as our first seminar giver, um, Rowan Williams, who needs no introduction. He is well known to us all, uh, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, who is now retired and living in Wales. The title of his seminar today is Contemplation in the City, Some Modern Approaches to Prayer in the Urban Landscape. Rowan will talk for about 40 to 45 minutes, and then there'll be time at the end for questions. If you have a question, please write them in the comment box and I will be able to select from them and ask Rowan the relevant questions at the end of his lecture. But first, let us welcome Rowan Williams. Rowan, it's lovely to have you with us and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Paula. It's a great pleasure and a great uh, honour to be asked to, to join in this series. I've given myself quite a general title about contemplation in the urban setting in modernity, but I'd like to talk particularly about one figure in whom I've become more and more interested in the last few years. A figure who represents for me a particular kind of fusion of contemplation and action. And what I'd like to do is introduce you a little bit to her own life, give you a sample of some of her teachings, and then maybe indicate some of the questions that I would like to pursue a bit further in exploring thinking. The figure I'm going to concentrate on is a French social worker, Madeleine Delbrel, D-E-L-B-R-E-L. -E she was born in 1904 and died in 1964, and she spent pretty well her entire adult life living in Ivry-sur-Seine, now basically a suburb of Paris. She moved there in 1933 to open what I suppose you could describe as a house of hospitality, along with a couple of other young women. She lived in community, keeping open house for the people of that particular area of Paris, at that time a very, very seriously deprived area, and also um, a hotbed of left-wing agitation. It was regarded as a solidly Marxist part of Paris and very, very hostile indeed to the church. The little group with whom she lived simply used the name Charité de Jésus, the love of Jesus, as their slogan. They were not a religious order, though they observed prayer in common and they made commitments to the single life to celibacy while part of that group. Madeleine herself trained as a social worker and throughout the 30s and 40s worked with the people in the streets in Ivry, gradually acquiring a reputation for professionalism and trustworthiness as a social worker, which led her during the war years to be nominated as the senior social worker for the area, the uh, director of social work in Ivry, a most unexpected and unusual development for anybody connected with the church. Especially looking back to her early years in Ivry, where attacks on churches and clergy, both verbal and physical, were not uncommon, and where the church's credibility was at rock bottom. One of the things that interests me most about Madeleine Delbois is simply her capacity to bring credibility to the church's mission, not so much in her social witness alone, but in the way in which she combined that social witness with a demanding life of personal prayer and contemplation and a continuing ministry of writing and reflecting. 
by the early 50s, um, when her health was beginning to give way, she did less practically on the streets and a great deal more by way of writing and reflection, as we'll shortly see. But let's put her in context and say a little bit more about her background and her history. She grew up in a militantly atheistic family and as a teenager expressed that atheism herself in some of the writings which she uh, kept from that period of her life. She would wryly remark that she'd written a passionate celebration of Nietzsche's statement that God is dead as a teenager. She'd written a, a longish, a very uh, teenage poem um, with the slogan, God is dead, long live death, demanding that the modern, the modern self, the modern person should be honest, confront the death of God, their own mortality, their own meaninglessness. And then, as she liked to say, something overtook her quite unexpectedly and from a very unexpected quarter. She was briefly engaged to a young man who, to her great surprise and shock, converted to Catholicism and offered himself as a postulant in a religious order. She felt both personally shocked and shaken by this, but also under some pressure to think through her atheism. And in a memorable phrase, she said that she began to meet Christians who were neither older, stupider, nor more idealistic than I was. Neither older, stupider, nor more idealistic than I was. In other words, she began to mingle with ordinary but articulate young Christians, especially Catholics, who gave her some sense of what it might mean to lead an unspectacular, prosaic life of discipleship in the world while being perfectly serious about their belief and their practice. Before very long, she had herself become a Roman Catholic and briefly tested her vocation in a Carmelite convent. Fortunately for both her and the Carmelite convent, it became clear very soon that this was not going to work, that her extremely unconventional, bohemian, rather anarchic streak was not particularly fitted to contemplative enclosure. But her seriousness about the contemplative life, not just about its prayer, but its practice in general, was to inform the whole of her work for the next few decades. As I've said, she found herself eventually in Ivry by 1933, embedded in this little community of young women dedicated to shared prayer and shared service. But what had brought her to this point? This is one of the areas where I'd like to know more, to be honest. I'd like to know more what exactly she was reading during this period and with whom she was speaking. But one influence that we can be fairly confident of is the life, example and teaching of Charles de Foucault. De Foucault, great 19th century figure, who rather like Madeleine herself had come from a strongly anti-church, anti-Christian background, had had a dramatic conversion, had tried his vocation as a Trappist monk, both in France and in the Holy Land, and had decided that none of that really represented the essential vocation that God had put before him. And that vocation was both to solitude and to witness, a vocation that led him into the Sahara Desert of all places, where for many, many years he lived the life of a recluse, celebrating mass in a little chapel in the middle of nowhere, ministering with, speaking to, engaging the local Muslim tribespeople of the area. And during the whole of his time in the desert, he made no converts at all. That wasn't what he was there for, as he himself was very clear. He was there simply to embody Christ in a particular setting. He passed no judgment on his Muslim neighbors. He didn't argue with them or attempt to convert or subdue them. Sadly, the activities of French imperialist troops in the area 
led to a great deal of resentment and hostility towards foreigners in the community. And it was a group of Tuareg militants who eventually attacked and killed him. But his witness and his particular commitment to a ministry of sheer presence combined with deep contemplative silence had an impact far beyond what might have been expected. Early in the 20th century, groups began to study his work, the considerable legacy that he left behind of meditation and reflection, and to apply his model of presence and witness to the setting of urban modernity. Many of you will be aware of the legacy of Charles de Foucault in the form of the Little Brothers and Sisters of Jesus, communities living in the midst of <clears throat> urban poverty, following a very strict contemplative rule, long periods of silent prayer each day, and simply working alongside others in ordinary employment. The figure of René Voyaume, who was for quite a while the leader of the fraternity of the Little Brothers, again is someone whose name will probably be known. The evidence suggests very strongly that de Foucault's life and death had a considerable impact on the young Madeleine Delprel. She writes about him from time to time and speaks about how de Foucault lives out the beatitude of poverty, by which I think she means not just poverty in the straightforward sense, but that poverty of spirit, which the Matthean text of the Beatitudes puts first among the eight blessings. A poverty of spirit, which is about not seeking measurable results, not seeking success, but asking simply for the gift of fidelity. That's certainly one aspect which feeds into Madeleine Delbrel's spirituality. And it helps, I think, to make sense of the way in which she speaks of her vocation and the vocation of the contemplative in the urban setting as giving over to God the bodily reality that she is, so that God may have a face and hands to use, to contact those around. The point of the life that she lives in the midst of this urban desert, and that was what Ivry was in the 1930s, the point of that vocation is to embody something, to be a means by which God can physically, literally, concretely be in touch with those around. It's a desert, she says, where we are handed over to God. The physical reality that she lives, that she is, becomes quite simply the means by which God becomes real in that setting. And in a very powerful image, she says that union with Christ is not about some kind of energy that lifts us up to the heights of heaven. It's a weight that pulls us down to the deep places of the earth. A weight that pulls us down to where the suffering and the darkness is most acute. The kind of life that she lived was, of course, one in which traditional monastic solitude and retirement was not easily to be had. She writes about how she had to discover her solitude when, for example, walking through the streets, or indeed riding on the bus. She quite literally used the opportunity of bus travel to do some of her prayer, some of her reading. And the solitude that she sought was not so much a physical and literal solitude, impossible in her circumstances, but the kind of profound self-awareness in the presence of God, which allowed her, once again, to hand over to God all that she was, all that she was doing. 
unsurprisingly, she became very interested in the post-war period in the worker priest movement in France. As you'll know, during the late 40s, a number of clergy, especially in Paris, decided that in a France which was drifting further and further away from traditional Catholic practice, one possible model for priestly vocation was to go where people were, to take ordinary jobs in factories and so on, alongside the proletariat. Asking no questions, bringing no agenda, but like de Foucault, like her little brothers, like Madeleine herself, simply offering a ministry of presence. In the early 50s, that movement was suppressed on the orders of the Vatican. Madeleine wrote some very interesting reflections indeed. <clears throat> this period, she was deeply disturbed and angered by the negative decision from Rome about the worker priest movement. And she has some very searching things to say about how to understand the church itself in this context. She notes that the language being used by Rome and by some of the hierarchy in France was a language very much to do with the church as mother. We must be obedient to mother church. And Madeleine very typically picks up the word and plays with it. What is our relationship to our mothers? Is it that of uncritical obedience? Is it simply allowing ourselves to be wrapped up in a muffling and silencing embrace? As we grow up, we actually argue with our mothers quite a bit. Our mothers are seen more and more as, yes, crucially nurturing presences, but also part of the same human family we belong to. It's perfectly possible to acknowledge the church as mother without allowing that to become a stifling, infantilizing sort of relationship. And there are essays from the early 1950s of great force and passion on that subject. Her writing is not particularly systematic. It's fragmentary, reflective, and very often, and I think at its best, aphoristic. The work by which she's best known is mostly put together after her death. And there are two books in particular worth mentioning here. Nous les gens de la rue, We the People of the Streets, is probably the best known of her reflective works. And this is where she lays out some of her theories, you might say, about what it means to be an urban contemplative. The people of the streets simply means here what we used to say in English, as what we used to mean in English by the man in the street, though we can't use gendered language like that any longer. But she's simply saying, we the ordinary folk, the people on the bus, the people in the street, the people who don't have an obvious and immediate and visible vocational badge, but who are nonetheless in the body of Christ called to be signs of faithfulness, presence and gift, called to be the body of Christ in the most routine contexts of daily social life. And that is something which pervades another of her works, which has become moderately well known in some English speaking circles. A collection of aphorisms under the title The Little Monk. And if I may be allowed a comment here, I think it's very unfortunate that the standard English translation of this appears in a book with rather coy and twee little cartoons of funny monks doing funny things. I think that completely misrepresents the toughness, the real wit and subversiveness of these aphorisms. And I'll come back to some of those in a moment. But if you want to get some sense of her personality, the little monk is probably as good a place to begin as any. Because despite her comments about the desert, about the weight that drags us down into the depths of human suffering, 
The last thing that anybody would have said about Madeleine Herbrel was that she was a sombre character. Every photograph you will see of her, every recollection of her, and a great deal of her writing makes it quite clear that she was a constantly lively, challenging, warm, and, and funny person to be with. One of my favourite photographs of her shows her in the street, squatting down on her haunches, with her head slightly tilted, obviously listening to what a small child in front of her is saying, a little girl who's playing with um, a spinning top in the street has stopped her again and is clearly talking to this older woman who is listening with deep intentness, with arms propped on her knees as she squats on the pavement next to this little girl. A brilliant image, I think, of what she believed to be most important in her ministry and her understanding. Back for a second, though, to her sense of living out a kind of monastic vocation in the street, in these ordinary places where the gens de la rue, the ordinary people of the streets, were to be found. Two points which she underlines very, very strongly. One is that a ministry with and for, alongside the poor, is not a matter of bringing your generous gifts to the poor, not a matter of tolerating or patronising, but she says approaching the poor, the dispossessed, with a sense of expectation. She draws the distinction between simply tolerating those around and, as she puts it, awaiting them. That is approaching them with the expectation that their deep personal reality rooted in God's gift will have something to convey. In other words, the contemplative attitude, which is refined in silent prayer, is one which allows us to contemplate the full, dense, three-dimensional reality of the human person who is next to us. And the silence out of which that attention comes, she says in a memorable phrase, allows the real gift of the self, not simply of a selfishness that has been gift-wrapped, a very typical metaphor, the gift of the self rather than the gift of a selfishness that's been gift-wrapped. And I think she's saying there very clearly that some of the attitudes with which Christians often approach ministry with and for the poor, whether locally or globally, has about it the selfishness gift-wrapped element. And in some of her aphorisms in The Little Monk, she reminds us that our own satisfaction at how well we're doing in serving the poor is not exactly a very adequate test of how much we are in fact doing the will of God. We have to be there to give God's love, not simply ours. So that's the first point, that deep sense of the obligation to enter into silence so that what is given will not simply be a satisfying image of us as givers, us as benefactors, but has some chance of being a channel of God's own love. And she says, well, here are a few of the aphorisms. Don't call touchiness in your neighbor what you call sensitivity in yourself. Don't cling to anything, including poverty. Better to take what you are offered than choose what you will give up. And one of the most searching of these aphorisms, rather than trying to keep quiet, just listen. As I've said, all of these are insights honed in the experience of sitting before God in silence and bringing that 
contemplative listening, that expectant awaiting to how we react to those around us. Back to that photograph of her with a little girl in the street. A second point is what she has to say about obedience, crucial to traditional monastic life. And here she picks up themes which have their remote origins, I suppose, in the 17th century French spirituality of Père de Cossade or Brother Lawrence, the practice of the presence of God. Here she picks up the idea that obedience is fundamentally the willingness to receive in the moment what is being given. And so she says in one set of comments, our religious superiors in this kind of urban ministry, our religious superiors, our abbots and abbesses, who are always present with us, are the circumstances of life. So she says, they are the telephone that rings, the key that won't work, the bus that doesn't come. They may include the sheer routine of the day, the weather, the people, as she says, the people who need to kill time and find you convenient to kill it with. These are the instruments of religious obedience, because these are the circumstances which deliver to us the imperative to turn to God, to find God in these moments, to ask what it is that here and now can be done, not to solve a problem, but to be open to what God is doing, to allow God to come through. And I think this rethinking of monastic obedience in terms of the telephone and the bus and the weather is one of the most distinctive things that she brings to her teaching about contemplative life and indeed the ministry of solidarity and accompaniment and presence which arises from contemplation in her understanding. And arising out of this also is another metaphor that she uses to great effect which is that the life she leads, the contemplative life in the street, in action, is a life in which you have to develop the skill of collecting, harvesting everyday experience. You have to develop a kind of instinct for the clues and the invitations coming from God in these daily circumstances and to work with them, to allow them rather to work on you. And the point of all this, as I've said, is the gift of self. Not the gift of a self which you have cultivated, matured, refined, directed, but the gift of a self which is carrying something other than itself. God's love rather than ours. She speaks at one point of how her ministry and her vocation exist, as it were, suspended between two depths, two abysses. The measurable abyss of the world's rejection of God, the measurable abyss of the world's rejection of God, and the unfathomable abyss of the mysteries of God. On the one hand, there is the depth into which the weight of the love of Christ drags us, as she has said. And that's measurable because the world's rejection of God is, in her view, a finite reality. We're not really capable, it seems, of infinitely rejecting God or indefinitely rejecting God. She doesn't theorise about universal salvation, but it's a very telling phrase that this is a measurable abyss. We may get stuck in it, but it's not as if there is a sort of bottomless pit beneath us. Our stuckness is our own choice. There is always an end available. Because on the other side is the unfathomable depth, the unfathomable abyss of God's mysteries, God's action, God's presence, God's gift in Christ, in the church, in the sacraments. There then is something of a sketch of Madeleine Delbrel's vision 
of serving God as one of the gens de la rue, the ordinary people in the street. And while her own witness and her own understanding is in so many ways extraordinary, she's very insistent, especially in the aphorisms in The Little Monk, very insistent on the importance of anyone setting out to be a Christian witness, let alone a Christian leader, of continuing to regard themselves as profoundly ordinary. So here again from The Little Monk. To love God means to be who God wants and to do what God wants. If you cannot love God's holiness through being good, try to love his mercy when being bad. Stop obsessing about doing the whole of God's will. Just wish that everybody would be doing God's will. Not a great saint, not a great sinner. Just be one more member of the great community called church. If you don't have a particular burden to carry, you might be meant to help others carry theirs. Better to pray for others than to judge them. You are always on call. Pray to God as if you were the only one doing so. When you feel as though you were the pat of butter used, used to grease the pan, remember that without the fat, the food will burn. Pray as if you were the only one doing so, and yet at the same time, be aware that you are simply one among others, not a great saint, not a great sinner, but a member of the church. It's a pity that she left no systematic treaties, but it's hardly surprising. What we have is letters, reflections, meditations, thoughts written for ephemeral newsletters, and the memory of those who knew her. In 2018, Madeleine del Rey was declared venerable by the Vatican. In other words, she is on the path to canonization a fate which I think would have surprised her very considerably. She's sometimes called the French Dorothy Day because her ministry to the destitute, the urban destitute, is indeed in many ways quite close to the witness of that great servant of God in the United States, Dorothy Day and her Catholic worker movement. But what I find slightly different in Madeleine's work is, I suppose, two things. One is a far more intentional grappling with the idea of how contemplation issues in action, which is certainly a truth in Dorothy Day's life, but not one that she writes directly about quite so often. And the second thing, perhaps, is, well, perhaps a different kind of theological world in which he's operating. In that, one of the interesting things about Madeleine Delbrel is her contact with and her, the support she had from some, in some ways, quite surprising theological authorities within the French church and more widely. The great Jesuit theologian, arguably the greatest French theologian of the 20th century, Henri de Lubac, was a great enthusiast for her and for her work and wrote about her very sympathetically and very insightfully. Even more strikingly, the Swiss Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar wrote the introduction to her Jean de la Rue, People of the Streets book. And Balthasar, who's often thought of as the representative of a very complex, elaborate, rather conservative Catholicism, in fact, shows what not everybody notices in his work, shows some of his deep sensitivity to the insights of someone like Madeleine working with the poor in that introduction. 
where he speaks of how she manages to negotiate the difficult balance, the sort of hairline between unconditional love and a decisive rejection of all ideological programs that shrink or limit the dignity, the freedom, and the sheer surprisingness of human life. So there's rather more than you find in Dorothy Day's life of sort of interplay with a particular kind of mostly post-war Catholic theology in France, and by extension um, in Germany and Switzerland through von Balthasar. This, remember, is the age of what was called the Nouvelle Théologie, the discovery by French theologians in the 30s and 40s of some of the riches of early Eastern Christianity, the rejection of an excessively formal and rigid use of the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, and above all, the recognition that the relation between nature and grace was not a relationship between two alien realities. What we were made to be by nature was always going to be receptive to grace. And that grace would come through our involvement in creation, not by turning our backs on it. This is at the heart of so much of de Lubeck's writing. And to see what that might have meant in practice, we can turn to Madeleine Delbrel's witness and a reflection. So when I think about the study I'd like to pursue a bit further with her, one area I really want to explore is a little bit more about the nature of whatever personal contact she may have had with these theologians and how the ideas around nature and grace around in de Lubeck's thought especially, around the affirmation of a world which was nonetheless recognized as fallen and destructive, how that might have impacted on her own reflection. The worker-priest movement had, I think it's fair to say, a slightly uneasy relationship with theologians of that kind, and yet there were many from that world who were supportive of new initiatives in urban mission, such as the worker-priest movement, precisely because of that deeply traditional understanding coming from the earliest days of especially Eastern Christianity, a deeply traditional understanding of the non-duality, you could say, between grace and nature, the non-alienness between grace and nature. But the very last thing I'd want to say by way of introducing Madeleine Delvoil to you is to do with what she implicitly says about not only the life of silence and contemplation, but the mission and witness of the church. One of her books published in her lifetime was called um, Vie Marxiste, Terre de Mission, Marxist Town, Mission Territory. But the mission territory of Ivry, where she worked for all those years, was not a territory to be explored by a kind of Christian colonialism. It wasn't that kind of mission territory. The mission could only happen by listening, by identification, and by that enormously demanding life of giving oneself over, handing oneself over to God in the depths and accompaniment in those depths, the accompaniment of love and of service. We are always prone in the church to worry about the strategies of mission. And these days there's plenty to worry about in a context where the visibility of the church in large tracts of society is very hard to discern. I suspect that what Madeleine Delbrel has to say to us has something to do with not actually worrying too much about that kind of visibility. 
but asking not so much about visibility, but about embodiment, about presence, about what, whether there is indeed a face, a pair of hands, in which God is concretely and actually ministering and reaching out to others in a life which at the same time is expectant, awaiting the gift that the deprived and the lost and the forgotten have to give. And that perhaps the obedience of the whole church to the will of God has more than we might think to do with Madeleine's account of obedience. Seeing not just the circumstances of individual life, but the circumstances of a complex society, which in many ways is drifting away from religious practice. What if listening to that, accompanying and attending to that is also part of our obedience? She remained throughout her life a deeply loyal Catholic, again, like Dorothy Day. Sometimes she is prayed in aid, like Dorothy Day, by those who are sceptical of where the modern church is going, especially the modern Roman Catholic Church. Her piety is in many ways deeply traditional. But her obedience to, her conformity with the visible church, her unquestioning devotion to a traditional sacramental piety, and indeed to the language of sacrifice, the language of suffering for the sake of the will of God. That doesn't mean that she believed the church somehow had a right or an authority to order sacrifice on the part of others, to determine exactly how people should live out their discipleship. That essay from the 50s about the church's mother tells us something about the many-sided nature of her understanding of the official, the institutional church. Neither a rejection nor an uncritical embrace. An awareness simply of standing in the community as an ordinary member of the community, the gens de la rue, the people of the streets, an ordinary member of that community, but also not simply entitled, but impelled to ask the difficult questions about humility and service, about the realism that alone will allow us to make our lives a sign of a gift other than our own egos gift wrapped, as she so memorably put it. She's yet to receive all the attention which I think she deserves. I suspect that the process of her canonization will bring a good deal more research and writing over the coming years. I've indicated some of the areas where I personally would like to pursue some of those researches. But I hope that this brief introduction has given you some flavour of a writer who, for me, has been among the most fruitful, the most challenging spiritual writers I have come across in the last 20 years. I'm, for one, deeply grateful that her work is beginning at least to attract some of the attention it deserves, and I hope also to have some of the effect it should have on the life of the body of Christ, of which she was an ordinary member, one of the Jean de la Rue. Thank you for listening. Rowan, thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I'd never heard of Madeleine Delbrel before, um, and uh, I'm sure I won't be the only one to at least rush off to get her book of aphorisms, if nothing else. Um, I'd like to invite people at this point to um, begin to add some questions into the comments. We're beginning to get a couple in. But before I turn to them, I'd quite like to ask you just an, an introductory question, which is where did you come across her? Um, I wondered how you, how you found her in the first place. Mm. I came across her simply because um, the publisher sent me a copy of The Little Monk. Ah, brilliant. When it appeared. And I'd never heard of her either. And this was published, just a moment, in uh, 2005. I think the first English translation mm. of the 1997 edition 
rather a rather fuller work in French of these aphorisms. Um, and I became interested, unsurprisingly. And I kept that particular book um, on my study desk all through my years at Lambeth Palace and, and since, because it's the kind of book which, whenever you pick it up, has, has something to say. There is a biography of her, not a terribly inspiring one in, in English. Um, I think that there's room for a much more substantial work. There are some studies in Italian and German as well as in French now. So the literature is growing very slowly. And there's a, a pretty reliable French standard edition of her, her works as well. That's great. Thank you. So let me turn to some of the questions that are coming in. The first from Rebecca Nicholl. Could Madeleine's view of service of the poor, vocation, obedience, etc., be summed up as self-denial? I think in, in a word, yes, it probably could. Um, and when she speaks about self-denial, when she speaks uh, again in uh, The Little Monk, sorry if I can just look up uh, one of her texts here. She, she says, have no, se have no set concept of yourself. In other words, don't approach service with an image of what it would mean to be um, a holy and satisfying servant of God. Just, you know, just get on with it. And the self-denial is not so much a program of you know, fanatical asceticism, though she says at another point in The Little Monk, don't be surprised if you know, things aren't physically very comfortable, but don't, you know, don't um, draw any conclusions from that. But I think that this have no set concept of yourself is, is part of what she means by self-denial. And that also involves, again, from the same little group of sayings on humility, Better not to look at yourself than to weep over your shortcomings. In other words, don't obsess about how badly you're doing, because that's another kind of selfishness. So there's something almost like Zen koans about these little sayings, yes. <laughs> um, where you know to, to hear them correctly, you almost have to drop your your assumptions. As she says, you know, if, if you get attached to poverty, drop it, um, and don't think about what you need to give up think instead about what you need to give. It's a really refreshing attitude, isn't it? But they're kind of they're not taking yourself too seriously. Very much form so. of Christian Very spirituality. Much. And I think a, a great many of the sections of The Little Monk are, I, I'd say, crucial reading for anybody in any kind of position of responsibility, because many of them are about how, how you exercise leadership without crippling self-consciousness and either sort of illusory picture of how well you're doing or a despairing picture of how badly you're doing she sort of gives a rather gallic kind of shrug and says well what's the next thing to do yeah no this is a great vision i've got another one from christopher ramsey who says she had a particular dedicated vocation how can we apply her example to the normal vocational life mm. of christians working and bringing up families in urban mm. life today so it's a rather nice question i think it's a very good question, and I, I think she would have welcomed it because, as I say, she, she wanted to be speaking to the ordinary people of the streets. Yeah. Yes, of course, she had a very, very distinctive vocation, but I think what she says about obedience is at the heart of this, and it relates a bit to what you find actually in some 16th century Anglican writing after the Reformation, where one or two writers like um, Bishop Latimer and Archbishop Edwin Sands say, we're not abolishing monasteries, we're trying to recreate monasteries in the ordinary life of people, that is, people who understand their ordinary duties, their obligation to their family, their obligation to their work, their obligation to their neighbour, who understand that as the obedience they have to offer and, and the object of contemplation that's set before them. So I think with, you know, with the job, the family, Madeleine talks about how you can see the missed bus or the inconvenient telephone call as as God's presence, and um, and I, I do speak with feeling, remembering these days vividly, the child waking in the middle of the night is also, you know, the bell summoning you to the night office. It's kind of understanding all of this as requiring obedience, not in the sense of submission, humiliation, or whatever, but here is something you are summoned to listen to, because by listening you will grow. And again, her remark about silence: don't don't fuss about how you how you keep quiet. Just learn to listen, active rather than passive. Mm 
I've got another question before I come to one of the others on the um, list. I was really struck by her critique of the church's mother because mm. I've mm. often found the church's mother to be quite a difficult metaphor, mm. but I've never really thought of it as taking it. You can't take a metaphor literally, can you? But, but taking it more literally mm. in the sense that you relate like you relate to your mother. Mm. So for good and for ill, um, you mm. argue and you agree yeah. and you love. Mm. And, and I don't think I'd ever kind of heard it expressed mm. in that kind mm. of way. And it, it, I find it quite a kind of a, a tantalizing vision, really. It is, yes. And that, that particular um, essay of hers, although it, you know, it's, it's another of those fragmentary tantalizing things, it gives you some clue of, of how she was able, again, like Dorothy Day, and perhaps like Charles de Foucault and others, able to inhabit the church, to feel at home in the church, while repeatedly finding it exasperating, disappointing, scandalous. You know, Dorothy Day, in her long life of witness, was often really seriously at odds with members of the hierarchy. When um, Cardinal Spellman in New York was busy defending the Vietnam War, um, or blessing the Vietnam War. Dorothy Day, representing a Christian pacifist and anarchist tradition, um, had no qualms about saying, well, he may be the Cardinal Archbishop of New York, but he's wrong. <laughs> Madeleine has something of the same sharpness of judgment, mm -hmm. not, not an arrogance, but just a sort of, again, a sort of shrug of saying, well, fine, but this, this is where I, I'm called to stand. Mm -hmm. Yes, a little bit like your family. It's uh, your, a like your family, yes. Yeah, yes. So, yeah it's, it's, it's a great image. Um, something else from James Dwyer, uh, who asks, where might we find Madeline in today's church? Where might her prophetic voice be heard the loudest? Mm. Mm. Well, of course, the, the, the ministry of the Little Sisters of Jesus and the Little Brothers of Jesus does continue in the Roman Catholic Church. And I think there's a great deal to be to be said there about their continuity with this fundamental vision. And those people I know who've lived with or joined these communities strike me as having exactly that kind of balance between the profound learning of silence in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament and the creative engagement and the active listening that goes on beyond that. But I suppose one of the things you'd have to say is someone who'd really internalized Madeleine Delbrel's teaching would probably not want to be very visible and wouldn't want to be held up as a kind of example that everybody should follow. Um, during her lifetime, she was very reluctant to emerge as a, as a sort of guru figure. And it's no accident that a lot of her most important material has been posthumous. So I think I would say you just have to keep your eyes open when you're when you're looking at let's say a situation where the church is trying to engage with these abysses that she talks about the, the dark places where the weight drags you down just keep an eye open for the people who who are on call and when i think of some christian communities i've known some parishes i've known in challenging deprived areas, quite often there'll be one or two figures who come to mind who simply give that message of being on call. She says, you're always on call. And I don't think she means by that you have to be constantly you know, looking for work to do. It's just that you can't ever quite switch off mm -hmm. that attunement to the obedience of the, circ of the circumstances mm -hmm. will be pushing at you. These are people who are simply consistent, who have integrity in their response of awaiting and attending. Mm. Yeah, and I can immediately think, as you talk of those people, you, you, can, you can see them in your mind's eye, can't you, or the people mm. through mm. your, your mm. life who you've met like that. Um, there's a great question just coming from Robert Titley. Um, what might Madeline make of ministry in the online world like we're doing now? Is her kind of real presence possible in an online conversation like this? It is a very good question. Thanks, Robert. Um, I suppose we're still finding it out, aren't we? Mm. Um, and that's the thing, we, we've been dropped into a, a kind of cultural whirlpool in the last couple of years in all sorts of ways, but not least in how we communicate with one another. 
and how exactly we embody presence on screen. I'm not sure. I, my sense is that people do it more than we sometimes imagine they do. But I think also that there's something she's saying about the unavoidability of other people in the streets where she's working. I do always have the choice of reaching for that tempting little button with the X on it <laughs> on the screen. Um, when you're living as she was in a rather tumble-down um, workers' condominium in Ivry, you don't have the button to, to switch people off. Mm. And when she writes about the solitude that she discovers walking through the streets or traveling on the bus, um, you know, there's something quite important going on there. It is, it is real entry into the silence of God, and yet it is physically alongside, helplessly alongside others. So perhaps we ought to think a bit, well, what's, you know, what's the power that online presence mm -hmm. hangs on to? And what, what's the power we renounce when we're actually more obviously alongside mm -hmm. physically? Not an easy one to disentangle, but... Um, yeah, and, and is it possible to do that alongside us mm -hmm. online? Um, yeah. And I'm sure the answer to that is yes, but we haven't quite got exactly. there yet, I think. Yes. Um, Sally Clark wants to press a little bit more on the self-denial um, thread and mm. is asking, is it more a positive embodied whole self-giving than it is um, a self-denial? Um, how would you react to that? Well, of course, uh, the, the answer, just <laughs> the obvious, the answer is that it is, it is both. Yeah. Because... When she talks about gift-wrapped selfishness, which is such a, you know, such a piercing phrase, and you think, oh, that's, you know, I, I know what she means, heaven help me. I think she's saying there that the, the pictures we, we construct of ourselves and the, the standards we set and the obsessions we have about ourselves and the dramas we create, all of this is actually not helping us be ourselves in any very constructive way. And for Madeleine, as I think for any Orthodox Christian, being yourself means being the creature God has made you to be as a vehicle for others to perceive and receive what God is giving. Um, that's yourself. Um, and there's the paradox that you become that self in learning to give what is not yourself. So self-denial, absolutely, I think, because this is tough stuff. But self-denial in the sense of um, oh, self-humiliation, self-abasement, no, 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 no. That's, you know, that's, she would say that's absolutely the wrong approach because yourself is still at the center of the story there. It's just that you're putting a minus rather than a plus sign in front of it. What if you just you know, stepped sideways from all of that and allowed God to be God in you these words flow from the tongue so easily in their, in their lifetime's job. But I think that's what she's pushing us towards. I've got one final question before we end. It's from Claire Dowding um, about the religious superiors. Mm. Does this offer a different shape to ministry in urban spaces and help us value the everyday encounters of parish life, perhaps as a counter to measurable outcomes? In a word, yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's yeah. absolutely on target. Um, we are very prone to think in terms of targets and output and outcome, and that's not evil in itself. And, you know, I'm not saying that we are wrong to think of strategy and budget and value for money and all those other things, but there is something fundamental at the heart of this, which really has to do with, are we, are we free to respond where God speaks spontaneously? from the heart. Are we ready to, like the infant Samuel, you know, throw off the bedclothes and say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And if any strategy stops us listening or makes it harder for us to listen to where we actually are and the people we're actually with, then that strategy is, is frankly worthless. So one question I ask about any kind of strategy for mission or pastoral work is, does it help or hinder our listening, our awaiting, our expectation? of hearing God's voice in the place where we are. Rowan, 
Thank you so much. Um, I know I'm speaking for many people because all their comments are in the um, comment box. Um, but thank you for everything that you've given us. It's been inspiring, um, tantalizing, fascinating. And I know many of us will go and discover um, a new writer, which will be wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all for being here.